I don't know that you all realize what a ministry your singing is to others in our congregation. Uh, I, I don't, maybe you feel it at times when you need to be ministered to just hearing your church family sincerely echo good theology and do it with just joy. It's fun. Hope it encourages your heart. I think it's one of the reasons it's significant that we pray for even something like our music. Um, Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Might be slightly somewhat metaphorical that we're talking about suffering as you have to suffer through a third sermon in this section. Let me just ask in a sincere question. I usually don't ask for a physical response like raising your hands, but I'm going to. How many of you would say this last year has been one in which you have felt the sorrow of suffering enter into your world? Where people hurting. Life is difficult. When you read the book of Philippians with an eye for suffering, you see multiple ways in which God has, by his divine hand, sent the winds of suffering that are battering the ship of the Philippian Sea. Paul is in prison in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. The threat of death hangs over him so that he is both considering whether or not it would be worth it to die because that's gain or whether it is worth it to live because that will be fruitful ministry for the church in Philippi. He's engaged in a civil conflict, and then he says, and you are also engaged in it. So both Paul and the church in Philippi are engaged in a civil conflict in which the society around them is persecuting them. And he says, don't be afraid. It's not merely just suffering in the sense of affliction. It's suffering in the sense that there is cause for fear, whether it's loss of property or loss of life. They're truly suffering under a society that has no tolerance for the Christian faith. When you come to chapter 4, both Epaphroditus and Timothy have suffered significantly to pursue an agenda of serving the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of Paul and the Philippians. Epaphroditus almost dies, Scripture says. When you come into chapter 3, there is internal spiritual doctrinal persecution. You have these people calling the Philippians to, to receive their welcome, and the cost of it is a legalistic, Judaistic, false gospel in order to get that acceptance. There's infighting among spiritual leaders within the church. And certainly, if you have lived any amount of time, you have felt the relational hurt that can happen when sweet brothers and sisters in Christ that you love on both sides of a fight are fighting. The church is experiencing that, probably a call to follow in somewhat of a church civil war, Judea or Syntyche. Had to be heartbreaking to watch women of profound fruit and faithfulness fight. Finally, chapter 4, there's extreme poverty. We know this from the books of Thessalonica, the books or the letters written to Thessalonica, where out of their extreme poverty they were giving to Paul's ministry. But here in chapter 4, he calls them to contentment, regardless of whether God gives them financial strength or gives them poverty. And generally speaking, it seems as though the Lord was granting them the grace of poverty. This church had it all. They had a lot of suffering. They had suffering that was caused by sinfulness and the infighting. By society pressing upon them. By circumstances like poverty. They had all sorts of suffering. I think often when we consider suffering, we, we might get a narrow bandwidth in our mind and get stuck on it. But sometimes your suffering is your fault. You've sinned, you've done wrong, and you're dumb. And you suffer for it. And sometimes we're innocent. And someone next to us is dumb, and we suffer for them doing dumb, sinful things. And sometimes it's, it's the circumstances of society. You're living your life, minding your own business, and society or culture or, or economy or employer cause suffering that you have no ability to control and you are a passive agent and no one's actually even sinned that you know of and you're hurting. 
Sometimes it's circumstantial, sicknesses and diseases and cancers and old age and frailty and arthritis. They rack our bodies with suffering and pain and hurt. Sometimes it's just merely the byproduct of Adam and Eve sinning as we watch precious loved ones, whether they're young or old, pass away. Suffering. It's difficult. It presses our spiritual strength to its edge of reason. How is a Christian supposed to engage in suffering? I want to take you to particularly to verses 10 and 11, but I want to back up and get a running start. So I'm going to start in verse 7, and then we're going to really focus on uh, verses 10 and 11. Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes, but that righteousness. Let me add that in there so you know what he's saying. But the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ the righteousness that is from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The broader context here that the apostle is getting us to, after really pressing against this self-confidence where I would trust in my own ability to earn my righteous and good standing before God, having rejected that and saying all of that effort is now considered loss, he says, here's what I gain when I reject that self-confidence and cling to the salvation of God is I gain Christ. Now, if you, if you look through this text and follow it, <clears throat> I think it actually leads us to a conclusion about what he means by gain Christ. He says, I've, I counted loss for the sake of gaining Christ. That's the point of the end of verse 7. Indeed, I count everything as loss that I might, what? Have the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, is what the apostle says. Again, he says, gain Christ at the end of verse 8. And then in the uh, beginning of verse 10, he says that I may know him. Okay, so here's what the apostle Paul has said. On one level, I might try to gain heaven and gain good standing before God by being a good person. But if I do that, I don't get Christ. On the other hand, if I cling to Christ, I get righteous standing before God. That's, that's really the emphasis there in verse 9. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own by the law, but having a righteousness that comes from God. By faith in Christ. Right? That's his point. So that righteous standing then is how I gain Christ. Now he says that that leads to something else. Look in verse 10. Now having this righteous standing that gives me relationship with God that is on, on the basis of goodness and righteousness of Christ. Verse 10 says it leads us to this. That I may know him. So you don't get Christ and fellowship with Christ if you don't have his righteousness. But once you get his righteousness, you don't merely get his righteousness. What also do you get? Relationship. Right? This is talking about personal relationship with Christ. So anyone who says, I have relationship with Christ but does not have faith in Christ alone does not understand the Scripture's point here. The scripture's point is that salvation from sin and the righteousness that God gives also comes inevitably and inextricably with Christ. You cannot gain righteousness without also gaining fellowship with Christ. And the opposite is really his concern. You don't have Christ if you don't have his righteousness. If you have your own righteousness, if you're looking to your own merits, your own ability to not sin, your own ability to do anything, then you neither have his righteousness nor do you have him at all. So what does it mean to know Christ? Uh, this last week I had the privilege of speaking at a conference for young people, really kind of our good news type of age group. And I was talking to this girl, and I'm, I'm really not sure where she's at spiritually too much, 
but she said, I may not be really good on doctrine, but I love Jesus. That left me very confused. I let it go. Um, it wasn't the time or the place to press in and, and ask about salvation, but she was confident she was saved, and she was saying, um, I may not go to a great church. I know I'm considering leaving the church, but I have Jesus. What does that even mean? Maybe we could ask better. What should that mean? Right? Like, forget what she might have meant or what our culture might mean. Let's ask the question, what does the Bible actually mean when it says, we know Jesus? Or in this case, knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, I think it includes two, two elements that we would commonly say. It's both person and work. Right? We, we know what he has done, and we know who he is. And we relate to him in fellowship and unity. Knowledge is often used as a metaphor for a close, intimate relationship throughout the Old and New Testament. So that you could say that when a man knows a woman, it's talking about physical intimacy as a close awareness of who the person is and experience with them. So when he says we know Jesus Christ, he's not merely saying we know about him. It's that we actually have meaningful, close, interactive fellowship with him. And before you go crazy on interactive fellowship, what I mean by that is the king, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, speaks to us through his word. And we speak to him through prayer. And there is genuine communion when we speak to the Lord in prayer, when we worship him in song, when we unite together to hear him speak, when we read our Bibles, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking and we speak back to him in those moments where we're singing and praying and fellowshipping with him in the quietness of our hearts as we're meditating and speaking back as we meditate on his word. It's that personal interaction with Jesus Christ mediated through the word and prayer. But I think it also includes more than that. It, it cannot be less than the facts. Reading a theology book does not give you a relationship with Jesus Christ. But you must have correct theology of Jesus to have a relationship with the true Jesus. So we would include in this knowledge of his life, his sacrifice, knowledge of his obedience to the Father, a recognition that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, that the Son of God, eternal and infinite goodness and holiness and infinite presence, that this Son of God became human through the virgin birth so that now he maintains his full deity. He is still the Son of God, but he's added to it full humanity. And he remains like that in full deity and full humanity forever forward since the incarnation. It means that we understand his character we understand what it means when he is holy. We know that when he says, I am, that he's declaring that he still maintains his eternal timelessness and self-existence and freedom. It means that we look to Jesus Christ as the one to whom we may pray. We could pray to the Father and the Spirit, but Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We can pray to him. We know that his presence, because he's infinitely present, is with us. Not in the way of just merely omnipresence, but in the way in which the good shepherd says, when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. It means that we long to see our Savior in the pages of Scripture and learn of him and fellowship with him. We glory in the Savior who weeps over the lostness of Israel. And we look at his compassion as he looks towards Jerusalem, this city among the hills, and he weeps for her because they are scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And he sees the lostness ravaging the human heart and condition, leading them to despair of hope. And he pleads for their sake to the Father that they might see and know and believe. And yet they don't. It means with bitter sweetness we see him ride the donkey into Jerusalem, knowing that while a few gathered around him and celebrated him, most would want to crucify him. They were probably the same people, but it was the same city. We find in Jesus 
the fascinating person who blasts the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy and eats with sinners that they might turn from their sin. He pleads with prostitutes. He preaches repentance to the proud Pharisees. He pities the penniless widow. He's patient with Peter. He pleads with the publican Zacchaeus that he might repent and return his money. If we follow close after Jesus, we must know him. Do you know Jesus? Jesus suffered sleepless nights. He was so busy, the Gospel of Mark says, that he didn't even eat because he was caring for his sheep. The Apostle Paul knows Jesus. He finds it his joy to suffer for the sake of his sweet friend and Savior. Do you know Jesus? He might call you to suffer with him. Maybe you're not suffering now, but please do not believe the lies of the prosperity gospel that will tell you that Jesus does not want you to suffer. Jesus neither enjoys your suffering nor enjoyed his suffering. He's not a masochist who thinks that suffering is inherently good, but he calls you to suffer for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his gospel, for the sake of his people, for the sake of sanctifying the saints. God calls you to come with his son and be like him. I want you to go back to verse 11. Well, probably take another running start at this. I always say that, and then I back up so you guys get more context. But if you look at verse 9, he's talking about the righteousness. Now he gets into verse 10. He says, that you may know him. Not only know him, how do you know you know him? What does it look like when you know him? Have you ever wondered that before? We have several engaged couples and probably lots of people who want to be engaged. Feels like this is the season. Have you ever thought of this? Maybe you're married and you remember the moment where you're like, how do I know they're the one? What is the obnoxious answer you get from people who are married? You just know. It's like, it's this mystical piece of garbage that the poor person is like, she's amazing, she's beautiful, but I don't know if we're ready, I don't know if she's the one. And the wise sage wisdom is, you'll know. It's like, what? What does that even mean? This poor kid is asking. God does not leave us with, you'll know if you know him. He tells us what it's like to know Jesus, and it sounds nothing like you're often hearing. Let me, let me outline the text for you because I think it's actually significant to the meaning of the text. In, in verses 10 and 11, he says this, and, and if you think of it like in a poetic structure, um, the first line and the last line are a pair, and the two middle lines are a pair. And that points to the emphasis on those middle lines. It's kind of the way the organization works. So... When you come to verse 10, here's what it means to know him. First, the power of his resurrection. Second, to share in his sufferings. Third, and that's a pair with the second one, to share in his sufferings is paired with be like him in his death. And then the fourth one is paired with the first, so it's kind of like, if you're thinking poetic structures, it's A, B, B, A. I don't know if that made sense. I went just back, back to junior high for all of you. Some of you are getting PTSD right now. <clears throat> so that last line then, that, that echoes the first line. So he says, I, I want to know the power of his resurrection. He ends that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see those parallels really clearly, don't you? Okay, so we have these, these four lines of thought. And this is how he defines what it means to know Christ. So how do you know if you know Christ? What does it look like to know Christ? Here's what it looks like. These four lines communicate what it is to know Jesus Christ. To walk with him in fellowship. And it's, it's not, I mean, I made fun of like a, a modern song last week. I made fun of, I pointed out the trashiness of it. Just like theologically bad. Here's another one for you. 
I'm going to offend some of you older saints, maybe. Have you ever sung, I come to the garden alone? While the dew is still in the roses? And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his. He does not walk with you. He's in heaven. And he tells me I'm his own. It's this picture of this like sweet communion with Christ walking through a garden where he's whispering lovely little words to you. That is not what the Bible says. Now, I am looking forward to the day when perhaps I can walk through a garden with him, and he can talk with me, and he will say, you're my own. This is not today. So we come into this verse, and, and we have these four statements. So knowing Christ is to know him personally and to know him in terms of his work, what he accomplished on the cross, how he lived a perfect life of obedience for us. Now we come and we look at how, how practically does this play out. To know Christ means I rely on resurrection power. I rely on resurrection power. Now, I, I think we don't recognize how constantly we need God's grace because we're often walking in our own power. If you are going to accomplish anything meaningful for Christ, you must have his help. God's power is at work within all of his people to make them like his son, to make them able ministers. I think one of my favorite verses, if you ever ask me what my favorite verse is, this is usually the one that will come to mind, is Philippians 2.13. I want you to look at it quickly. We've already covered it a few weeks ago. He's, he calls upon us in verse 12 to work, labor, at our salvation. Now, he's not saying work to be saved. He's saying your salvation, your confidence, your faith in the gospel and commitment to Jesus Christ is something you live out. You walk by faith now that you are a believer. And, and you walk, you do it. You don't just say it. You're, you're not just saying words of faith. You're living by faith. You're doing stuff by faith, right? Then he says, for it is what? God who works in you, strengthening you to work strengthening you to want to work. So here's this incredible little package of challenge. Do the work of living out the gospel because God is empowering you to do so. Now we come to chapter 3, and the apostle Paul is saying, I am walking with Christ, I know Christ, and I have a life that's energized with resurrection power. Now why would he use the word resurrection? I think he's doing two things because he's leading us to, to actually consider the resurrection itself. But more than that, if you go to Ephesians 1, let me just read it for you. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. He's praying for the Ephesian church that they might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That moment is the moment in which sin was finally and fully defanged. And we still die physically, but it's lost its poison, so death has lost its sting. Grave has no victory over us. Sin has been broken. They just haven't signed the surrender treaty yet. But it's lost the war. When and how and what power was it accomplished that sin was broken and defeated? Well, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through his death and the full payment of sin, he suffered for the consequences, the guilt, and the penalty that we deserved. How do you know he fully paid it? How do you know death didn't win? Because he marched out of the grave. He was raised by the power of God access. And so when the Apostle Paul considers us still struggling with sin, still battling not to respond to suffering with sinful responses, struggling to be patient with our children, struggling to love our spouse, struggling to work hard in an environment that's hostile to Christ. When he looks at how sin presses on the believer, he reminds them there is a hope of sin's defeat even for you. Christ didn't merely defeat sin for him. That power that broke and defeated and left sin losing on the battlefield is the power at work 
to help you love your child. It's the power that's at work to help you speak to a coworker when you're afraid to share the gospel because you might lose your job. It's the power that's at work to help you not get gloomy when something bad happens. Instead, rejoice in the Every once in a while, I give a little test to see if you guys remember sermons or even just the Bible. First one, chapter three, rejoice in the, in the Lord. Hey, like that's, that's, that's where we consider our joy. Man, life is heavy. Sin is everywhere. And it sometimes feels like it's winning, doesn't it? not it's not winning we have the lord the battle has been won the victory has been accomplished and in our lives in our little section of the cosmic battle that the lord jesus christ has against sin sometimes we feel like the enemy is stronger than us because it is and our sin will overcome us and it will wreck our homes it will wreck our lives and so you say well what possible hope do i have against the mighty power of sin How do I quit pornography? How do I have joy when I can't see any light of hope in my life? How? You look to Jesus. We have this song, when Satan tempts me to, tells me the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Caleb and I were talking this week, so I apologize if any of you already heard this in equipping. I have no idea what he taught in there. I was ministering somewhere else. Let's just replace that. When my conscience tells me to despair, when it tells me the guilt within, I look to the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection power. I look upward and I see my Savior through eyes of faith. And I know we have won this. I know there's power for me to please God and to do right. And it's not my power. How do you have any hope that you will be able to encourage your wife to be faithful to the Lord when you don't even know how to encourage yourself? You look to the Word. You look to the Lord, you read the scriptures, and then you ask God for the divine power that raised Christ from the dead, and you say, please help me because I am weak. The Apostle Paul knew this. If you read 2 Corinthians 12, he says, your strength is made perfect in weakness. And when I am weak, then I have grace, so then I become strong. When Paul stands in his own strength, that is actual weakness. But when he is weak and he knows he's weak and he has to rely on God for grace, that's when he's actually able to accomplish anything so that he's truly strong only when he's knowing how weak he is. It's the paradox of weakness and grace. God gives grace to the humble, not the proud. He resists the proud. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God has entrusted the gospel to us, and we're weak vessels. We're like jars of clay. Who's sufficient to resist the pressures that would break our clay jar, uh, this this weak vessel? Why has God given such weak people, such, such frail people, why has he entrusted us with such a precious gift as sharing the gospel with one another and encouraging one another? Why would he do such a crazy, risky thing? Because God will sustain the clay pot. God will strengthen it. God will reinforce it by his grace. But that clay pot cannot withstand any pressure without his grace. Here's what it means to know Christ. Like Jesus Christ, who walked in trust to his Father and walked in the grace of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you and I walk through this life by faith that God will help us when we're doing his will. I think there, is, there are oftentimes where I will evaluate my resources and perhaps make a choice not to do something because of time or energy or ability. Rather than stopping and saying, Lord, 
Is it something you want me to do, and will you give me strength to do it? If God has called you to a secured responsibility, like you have kids or a spouse, then you also know that with that secure responsibility, something that you cannot righteously escape, that he will also give you grace and strength to serve him in it, right? What gives me competency to be a dad? It's not parenting books by trip. It's the grace of Christ, his strength in me. You must rely on the resurrection power to help you, enable you, serve Christ. We know Christ, first, by relying on resurrection power. Second, by following him into suffering. Who, when two choices are on the table, suffering and peace, chooses suffering? Jesus. Paul. And all of Jesus' followers, if the suffering is for his sake. Look again in chapter 3. As we're walking through the text, he started with that. I want to I know the power of his resurrection and share, share in his sufferings. It's one of those themes in Scripture we see multiple times that the Christian is called to participate with Christ in suffering. Romans 8, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children that heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, so notice both that we are heirs if we suffer with him. And if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. 1 Peter 4 says something similar. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Let me just remind you in Matthew, you'll probably recognize this, when before the judgment seat, as, as Jesus is giving that Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 particularly, where, where he is dealing with people and he says, you're going to receive reward for what you did. You fed me when I was hungry. You gave me water when I was thirsty. You clothed me when I was naked. You remember that? And, and, and the person that's responding says, when? When did I take care of you? When did I give you water? When did I clothe you? And he will say, inasmuch as you've done it to least of these, you've done it for me. So there's this theology of participation we even have in the New Testament earlier with Jesus that when we serve for his sake, we serve his people, we're actually ministering to Christ himself as expressed by his body of people. Likewise, when we suffer for his sake, we participate with him in his suffering. I don't think this means that the cross was not finished. What this means is that we join him in his battle against sin for the glory of the Father. And that is a battle that calls us to suffer as soldiers. It's his battle. And so we are suffering with him. He is the king that's called us to join him. And so we suffer for his sake, and we actually suffer with him, Scripture says. We participate with it. Now, does anyone else find it interesting that he seems to desire suffering? Well, consider this then. Jesus Christ is calling to each one of us, come, follow me. Maybe he's saying it like this, join me. So just draw the picture in your mind. Jesus Christ, in your mind, is walking down a path and he says, come with me. And so we're standing next to him. If it rains and Jesus gets wet, you get wet. If Jesus is walking and it's a glorious, sunny, blessed day, you get the glorious sun and the blessing of the day. If it's a day filled with suffering, what do you get? Suffering. Now, I want you to consider Jesus' life. He said, come walk with me. What was Jesus' life filled with? Suffering? It's like the 365 and a quarter days of the year, Jesus was a lot of those days suffering. In fact, I think one of the most compelling verses is when you go to Isaiah 53, and Isaiah is saying, Jesus, or actually it's talking about the suffering servant. <clears throat> Just even think about the title we give that passage. He's a suffering servant. It says he's a man acquainted with grief. That word acquainted means it was his friend. When your best friend is named grief, and Jesus calls you to come join him 
Paul was not wanting to enter into suffering for suffering's sake. He was wanting to enter into fellowship with Christ, and that included whatever Christ has. But he's going to share in his suffering. And I just encourage you that you and I have a tendency to look at life and navigate it to the paths of least resistance and sweetest goodness. Instead, we should not be aiming for, like, tragedy. I mean, please don't, like, put your hand in the garbage disposal because you want to suffer. Don't do something silly. What do you do? You pursue Christ. And as you're united with Christ, if Christ, for his sake and for the advance of the gospel, calls you to do something for him or calls you to participate in his suffering by putting in a place of hurt and injury for his glory, you suffer with Christ for his sake. Whatever righteousness requires, whatever pleasing Christ requires, it most often seems to call us in the New Testament to require, that it requires suffering, that we must suffer with him. And if I could just suggest to you, I think Christ prepares us really well for this in the Gospels. He says things like, when you follow me, you must take up your cross and die daily. If you didn't catch the word daily, it's not as though at salvation, like, I will die to myself. Day later, I'm glad that's over with. You die daily to your own pursuits and your own passions. Jesus says it this way, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit if he gain the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return for his soul? Don't, do not think that you can have your soul and the world too. You get one, your soul saved by the grace of Jesus Christ or what this world has to offer, but your arms are not long enough to hold on to both. Jesus Christ calls us to follow him. And whatever it costs to follow him, that's what we should give up. I often find somewhat humorous the romantic statements of people. You know, like they'll say something like, I would die for you. I would swim an ocean for you. And dad says, wait two months. Like, well, I, I don't think yeah, we're going to break up. What? You'll die for her, but you're not going to wait eight weeks? Come on, man. Like, get some perspective. Perhaps in your Christian life, you're, you're a little bit like that. I'll die for Jesus. You know, if I, I lived in one of those eras of persecution, like the era of Bloody Mary and she was burning people at the stake, I'd have been willing to get burned. But you can't even be nice to your wife for a day for Jesus' sake. You can't even tolerate your siblings being obnoxious for Jesus' sake. You can't even work hard in school for the sake of Jesus. You can't even turn off the television when trash comes on for the sake of Jesus. But you'll burn at the stake for him. You're probably like that young man who'd swim in ocean but it won't wait eight weeks. You're just self-deceived about the willingness to pay the cost of following Christ. He's precious. He's worth it. He doesn't call us, call us to suffer every day. And he certainly doesn't call us to morbid suffering. I and mean, look at verse 1 again. Chapter 3, verse 1. What are we supposed to do? Rejoice in the Lord. Every once in a while I'll have these weird fantasies like I would win a $1.3 billion lottery ticket. And if I did, this church would have a fantastic building. That's part of my fantasy. Actually, it wouldn't be this building, just to be clear, my fantasy. And, and I think there are times where, like, we, we think of dumb things like that, and it's just sobering. It's like, man, I have, I have the king of kings as my friend. He needs no money. He doesn't need a, a billion dollars is like nothing to the one who made and holds that billion together with his word. It's nothing. But you can just imagine, if you did have that $1.3 billion, and you misplaced $1,000, you're probably not nervous. You're not anxious. You're probably not even angry. You probably actually don't even know. Like, when you have that much money, do you really think you even know what $1,000 even is anymore? I mean, that's like interest in 10 minutes. It's just like, it's not a big deal. When we hold 
the precious treasure of fellowship with Christ and righteousness in him. Do you think the angry response of your child to you is significantly big that you would lose your sanctification and displease Jesus? And the answer is, yeah. That's where perspective is lost. You have this treasure in Christ. The world can burn, but you have Jesus. He's worth it. You can lose all of this life stuff, but you have Jesus. Do not lose sight of the treasure of Jesus. Do not lose the joy of what it means to have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and friend. Do not lose the hope of what he grants you in grace. Do not lose the confidence of his power in you. Do not lose sight of Jesus or this world's misery will sink you into despair and you will let go of Jesus. Christ is so precious that were you to lose all of the stuff of this world, it is a less significant loss than the billionaire misplacing $1,000 for sure. And it's not that we don't care about stewarding well God's resources he's put in our hands. It's that at the end of the day, we have Christ Jesus. So he calls us to fellowship in his sufferings, and then he says, becoming like him in his, his what? His death. What does this mean, becoming like him in his death? I think if you were to go back just a little bit into chapter 2, you'd see that Paul compare, compares himself to a drink offering that's being poured out. I think that's a helpful picture for us. Like ministry, life, energy, serving others, giving up of our own freedoms, uh, making ourselves a slave to others. This is what Jesus Christ does. And he calls us to do it with him. And I can almost picture my life being slowly poured out. I would like to think I'm young. I once called someone in our church middle-aged. I think they had great joy when a few years ago they are like, Mark, you know you're middle-aged. It's like my life is being poured out. But I dare not pour it out on the stuff of this world. I, I dare not waste it pursuing career. Pursuing sports and entertainment, pursuing a relaxation of vacations and a home on the beach. These things are, where are they going to be when Jesus returns? I mean, do you really think that in heaven I will be really excited about the athletic prowess of my child? Is that going to be the lasting story of heaven? Let me tell you about this one time. You'd be like, what, really? You're talking about football. And how good your son was at it. He was 11. How good could he have been? But not only that, it's football. It's not Jesus. It's not eternal. It's not valuable. It's not significant. It's just one of the ways in which God gives this world joy. And it's a good thing to have those types of joys. But they're not eternal things. Listen, if, you're, if your plate is filled with the stuff that's temporary and you're not investing in eternity, you're not investing your life and pouring your life into the things that last forever, you don't get Jesus. You don't understand what he did. He poured out his life to death for our sakes to glorify the Father. And then he says, come and be like me. This is the goodness of Christ. We glorify him for it. We praise his name by singing songs about his sacrifice. We look at that, look at the character of Christ, his, his, his attributes, and we say how glorious he is that he's a loving and sacrificial savior. We praise God for the sacrifice. And then he's like, so come and be like me. We're like, whoa, sacrifices are bad. Do you catch the problem with that theology? It's good if Jesus sacrifices for me, but if he asks me to sacrifice for him, we're like, oh, no, that's, that's not good. That's not a healthy theology. But wait, if it's glorious and wise for Jesus to pour himself to death on the cross, why are you making sure that cup stays upright and you don't expend any of your time, your energy, your money, your friendships, your Saturdays or your pursuits why aren't you pouring them out for the sake of the lord jesus christ it's a hypocritical 
shallow theology that holds back when Jesus says, pour it out. Well, what's the extent to which you pour it out? You pour it out to, to death. Right? Like, this is our call to give ourselves to Jesus fully. At what point will you hold yourself back from Jesus? Well, if we're following after him, when did he finally stop and say, Father, that's enough? We follow Jesus wherever he leads, even unto death. Now, there's a reason he goes there. What happens after death and only after death? What is something living people will never experience? A resurrection. So that's the last point, right? Look again in chapter 3, verse 11. I become like him in his death. Remember, the apostle Paul is also in prison and is considering that he might die in it. And he's calling the Philippians to understand that perhaps they could die too. We do not know what suffering has in store for us. But he says this, that that suffering leading to death leads to a resurrection for God's people. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. It seems like that uncertainty might be the fact that Lord Jesus might come back before he dies and then he wouldn't be resurrected. It's not that he's not going to receive glory. It's that he doesn't know how he's going to get through. Through the front door of the resurrection or through the side door of the return of Christ. He doesn't know which door he's going through. But he knows he's getting there. But his point on the suffering here is that if you suffer and you pour out your life to death, you do so knowing what comes after death for the believer who's with Christ. Christ lived life, suffered to the point of death, and came out on the other side through a resurrection. If we're walking with him, what do we experience? A life of suffering as we follow the Father's will, finalized by death, capped by the resurrection to glory. This has been the call of God's people, a call to God's people throughout the ages. If you were to read back just a few verses in chapter 2, Jesus Christ becomes obedient, obedient to the point of death. Verse 9, therefore God highly exalts him. Exaltation came as a consequence of death. It came as a consequence of obedience to the Father. It came as a consequence of humility leading to suffering and death. All of this leads to this. You have the hope of the resurrection because of being united with Christ in his suffering and death. And only then, if you back away from the suffering of Jesus and back away from participating in the death of Jesus, you also back away from the resurrection of Jesus. You do not get glory in the resurrection without participating in the suffering that he calls you to. Hebrews 11, I think, is instructional. If you've read Hebrews 11, uh, people call it the hall of faith because it lists character after character after character in the Bible who, because of confidence in God, acted by faith. Faith energized their behavior. So then it ends at the, the final conclusion of the chapter, not by celebrating the heroes like Moses, but by reminding us that people suffered, died, and never saw the suffering stop. Let me read that end for you. Some were tortured. So like we've gone through like Moses and Abraham, and we've gone through all these victors, and now we come to the losers. And by that, I mean in this world's definition. Some are tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and sheep, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They were wandering in the deserts, the mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And what's the point of Hebrews? Faith led these people to follow God, and God led them to suffering, 
They died in faith, but they died suffering. I mean, when your last thoughts in your life are the agony of a wood sword sawing you in two, there better be a resurrection. When you're destitute, pushed out of society, and living in a cave because you believe in God's word, and you die never receiving any confirmation or any defense from God in this life, and you die shamed and outcast, you better believe in a resurrection. God is telling us that he did this because there's something better, a resurrection in which we participate too. The author of Hebrews tells us this, so that we'd be willing to suffer with Jesus. Then Hebrews says this, Jesus Christ was led outside the city to die, and we go out with him to experience shame with him, to participate with him in the, the cost of following God's will. The reason Philippi is being challenged this way is because when suffering happens, we become disobedient. I don't know if that made sense to any of you, but if you were to think back, a passage I just read in Hebrew said, some of them suffered torture, and they weren't willing to be released. Now, why would you not want to be released from torture? Either you're weird, or what? How would you get released from torture? By giving up your claims and abandoning the faith. They didn't, and they died. You know, there are people in this room who are suffering in ways that I have never experienced. They're being pressed in ways I've never been pressed, and there's escape that Satan offers them. Maybe I could say God offers them and Satan tempts them. You can get out of it. There's a door right there, and that door looks so good. Because through that door, the suffering stops. But that doorway is sin. But that doorway will stop the pain. That doorway will get you out of what hurts. That doorway looks good. And God wants you happy, right? Does God want you happy? <laughs> That's really hard after this passage, isn't it? I know I'm called to suffer with Jesus. Can, can we use a better word? Does God want you joyful in the Lord? Is that the same as creaturely happiness? No. Not if Jesus was acquainted with grief. If you confuse those two, my brothers, you are going to get this thing wrong. Sister, if getting out of your marriage will get you out of pain, and you think God's giving you a divorce because he wants you happy, that theology is hellish. If you think your anger will put your kids in place and so you lash at them and they behave well and it stops the suffering, man, that escape by venting on your kids is hellish. It's from hell. If you've been hurt and you will not give forgiveness to your spouse or your loved one or the person in church who's hurt you and so you constantly bring back their sin to them, you and Satan are cheering the same slander and accusations you and Satan are saying the same words. That's hellish. Listen, the escape from suffering is often sin. Jesus Christ calls you to join him in battling even if you die against sin. I, I, I mentioned before, I think it's kind of funny when I hear young people talk about it, they'll die for this girl that they love. I, I, I hope that I'd be willing to die for my family. But it's really hard to die to myself on a regular basis for the sake of my family. It's hard not to ask them to make me happy. It's hard to stop what I'm doing and listen to my kids tell stories that make no sense. And last way too long because I just need to die to myself and be a good dad and be present and love my kids. Some of you men, you're not workaholics, but work is a relief from your home, so you, so you stay at work. You don't want to go home. 
Some of you ladies, it's easier to let your kids do what they're doing than have conversations that call them to Christ because of how they kick back against your conversations. Some of you struggle with just the suffering of getting up early to spend time with God. And you're prayerless. You're not fellowshipping with Christ in the word. The scripture is a stranger to you. And so the Savior is also a stranger. You're not even willing to suffer with a Bible in your lap through tiredness for the sake of Christ. But if someone put a gun to your head and said, are you a Christian? You might say yes. God is giving you all sorts of suffering in this life that your devotion, your affection, your loyalty to Christ would be proven. It's hard sometimes. I mean, if Jesus like said, hey, Mark, I'm gonna test you real quick. Your son's gonna come and tell you the most crazy story. It's not gonna make any sense. I just want you to sit there and pay attention. Could you do that for me? I'd be like, yeah, I can handle this. I just don't know that that's what Jesus is doing when it happens, so I don't pay attention, I don't listen, I walk away, and I don't love my son. So here's the Lord in his word telling you exactly this. This week, this month, this year, when your life presses you and there's an escape hatch that's comfortable, that's easy, that's simple, that gets you out of the suffering, that gets you out of the cost of following Christ, don't take it. Don't take it. Follow Jesus. Go back to chapter 2 and read and worship Jesus. He did not make himself of, of a reputation. He took on the form of a servant so that he could take what was good for him and give it to us for our good. And he was obedient to the Father to the point at which he died for our sakes. And he says, come follow me. And we're like, yeah, I want life. And then it's like, whoa, I don't want to follow into suffering. God has called us to follow Christ wherever he goes. Let me end with reminding you of Psalm 23. It's one of the most precious psalms. It's famous for a reason. The Lord is my shepherd, right? He's going to lead me into green pastures and still waters. And right there, it's like period and good. What else do we have in that passage? And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because, oh, see, the valley of shadow of death is suffering. See, the good shepherd who leads us to green pastures also leads us to the shadow where death looms over us and our family, our loved ones, and he is there with us, so we stay with him, and it is so hard. He's there with us in the presence of our enemies. Even in the Old Testament, Scripture is so clearly calling us, follow your shepherd. Sometimes it's green pastures and still waters. And sometimes it's death shadow and enemies. But he is with us. Are you with him? Do you know Christ Jesus? Is he your savior? Has he forgiven you? Are you fellowshipping with him through the word and responding by prayer? Is he your shepherd? Are you walking with him in obedience, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, Precisely because he has called you this pathway forward to follow him into suffering, to follow him into whatever it costs. Are you patient with the people around you? Are you long-suffering like your precious Savior? Do you give the truth with grace? Because that's how your Savior did it. Do you plead with sinners to repent? Are you a person of the truth like your Savior was? Is he your shepherd in green pastures or valleys dark? We want to drink the still waters, but we don't want to sit in the presence of our enemies. The Lord is calling us to both. Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our sweet Savior, who suffered for our sakes, now calls us 
to suffer for his sake. And so we will preach to ourselves that he is our good shepherd. He has laid his life down for us. We could do no less than to lay ours for him. Lord, I pray that the anthem of our church that we would always sing is that we have followed Jesus. We could always say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me to still waters. And even if I walk through the valley of death's shadow, I will fear no evil because you are with me. And in the presence of my enemies, I will rejoice because again, you are with me. When I look at all of life, my cup runs over with blessings. I am forgiven. I am loved. My conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I stand boldly in your gracious presence because of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for our church that we would stand fast. Do not let sin or comfort or escape ever rob from us the confident joy that Christ is ours. Lord, never let us go. And never let our faith grow weak because we have Christ. Help us to love him, follow him always because he is good. For his name and for his glory we ask. Amen.